I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleaded to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works, for if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will, be their, will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, and the whole batch is holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others, and now share in the nourishing, nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. Because if you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. But be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily would these, these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray before we start looking at this portion of scriptures. Father God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me as I seek to speak your word. Have mercy on us as listeners. Open our ears and our hearts by the power of your spirit so that we may be able to not just understand, Lord, but let's sink into our being your word revealed in the Holy Scriptures. So give us strength today, Lord. Cleanse us, we pray, and have mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How's the new year been? Have you, did you enjoy the start to the new year? I can't say I did. I have. In fact, I've got to tell you, the start of the new year for me, my new year, has been quite difficult, quite hard. Um, not because there's been any crisis or any great event. The start of my year has been very difficult because I, for the best part of the last week, have been bogged down in Romans 11. And I've got to tell you, it is hard. It's hard for a few reasons. One, you just heard Johnny read it. I don't know how many of you kept off the track, and it's long. And it's just, everything's just packed in there. There's just lots of stuff in there. And I think, should I do three talks on that or one? It's just too hard. I'll do one talk. Get it out of the way. I'm going to do two talks, but the second one doesn't really count. Um, Here's how I eat my dinner. Anna can tell you, she's looking after her mum today, but she can tell you when I eat my dinner, if I say, say it's uh, potatoes, peas and steak, which I hardly ever have, I eat the peas first. Then I eat the potatoes, because I like to leave the best to last. If there's a barbecue, I eat the salad first, then the potato salad, and then the chop or the sausage. Sausage, then chop. I leave the best to last. I start with the hardest stuff first. So that's what we're doing. If I've had a hard start to the year, you might as well have a hard Sunday at the start of the year. We're eating the meaty stuff first. This is possibly going to be the hardest teaching you will hear all year. And it is hard. So I'm warning you. But, but you know when you eat your salad first? If you, if you eat like me or your greens first? You do it because oh, I don't really, not really eat that into them, but they're the best bits for you. If I just ate steak all the time, it wouldn't always be good for me. So we're going to start with some stuff, tough stuff. Now, 
Romans, one of the reasons Romans 11 is so difficult is it's much debated. Quite controversial amongst Christians who know their stuff. Quite different opinions can be held on certain aspects. Let me tell you, all those different opinions in 36 the Greek, 11 words. I haven't got 11 fingers. 11 words is where almost all the debate is. Verse 15, life from the dead. Verse 12 and verse 25, the word fullness. Verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. In this way or so, all Israel shall be saved. Almost all the debate hinges on 11 words in 36 verses. And I have to say, I think each one of those phrases, because of the debate, is somewhat cryptic or hard or less specific than I would have liked Paul to have been. So we need to approach this passage with a measure of humility and also try and package it within what Paul's been saying. And I'm doing my best this morning. And some of you may be hugely offended by the outcomes I make by the end of this day and others of you may be rejoicing or others, most of you may just be completely confused. But I'm going to try and get to the big point. The big issue here is relationships between Jews and Gentiles or the Jewish people or Israel and the nations. Almost all of us, I believe, are nations, Gentiles. And it's not a big important issue for us, but it was a hugely big important issue in the New Testament. And it really should be a big issue when you look at God's purposes and God's promises to his people. What I want to do is stick in this passage with what I consider are the big issues of the passage, which I don't think are the big things that people debate about. And here's what I think the big issue of the passage is. God is calling his people by his purpose. Not by the strength of any other party, but by his power and his power alone for the purpose of manifesting his glory and in his mercy and grace to his people. Might have been a bit of a mouthful. Again, I think the big issue here is that God is in the business of calling his people to himself according to his purpose, according to his will. In other words, not by the strength of any other party, by God alone, by his power to display, to manifest to the whole cosmos, if you like, his mercy, which will display the gloriousness of his nature. That is, I think, the big issue. So we're going to look at this passage under four headings, pretty much those four headings, which is God's people, God's purpose, God's power, and God's mercy, which is where it ends, God's mercy. Firstly, God's people, and this is really where the debate gets most intense and complex. And so I'm going to start, actually, with another passage the writing of Paul to the Ephesians, which was a church that it would seem had Jews and Gentiles in the church, in what today we would call Turkey. Paul writes in chapter 2, addressing Gentiles, addressing the nations, the non-Jew. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, you didn't have the sign of being a Jew, 
by those who call themselves the circumcision, that's the Jews, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, you Gentiles, all of us. But now, in Christ, in Messiah Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near through the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them, that is Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility, this division between Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, the people of God, one Father. Consequently, Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Messiah Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There's a lot in that, but the two, Jew and Gentile, have been brought into one by the blood of Christ Jesus, through whom they grow to be one temple. Paul says exactly the same thing throughout Romans. It's a longer argument in Romans. Romans chapter 1. The theme statement of Romans, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, everyone who has faith, first for the Jew, amen, then for the Gentile. Go to chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says, We maintain that a man is made righteous or justified by faith, apart from observing the law, that is the Jewish law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. He is our God. Since there is only one God who will justify, make righteous the circumcised by by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Come to Jesus, come to Messiah, by faith made righteous, saved. One people. Chapter 4, he goes and talks about Abraham, to whom God made great promises to bless through his people the whole world. Paul says in verse 9, Is the blessedness spoken of only for the circumcised, only for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith. That's why he was righteous, says Paul. So down in 11 verse B, 11B, so then he is the father, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might also be credited to them. Go to verse 13. Uh, let me double check my verse. Go to verse 16. 
Therefore, the promise comes by faith. All the promises to Abraham to be included in God's family come by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring who are, well, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. By faith, he becomes your father in Jesus. Even if you're not a Jew, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. In other words, if you're a Gentile, you're a child of Abraham by faith in Jesus. Father Abraham had many sons. That children's song, many sons has father. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Paul's very, very clear on this. Chapter 8, verse 15. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, which means Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with the Messiah. I'm just repeating what the argument of Romans. There is one people of God saved by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. There are not two people of God. They've been united. So that Abraham is the father of us all. If you go to Galatians, another letter of Paul's, to another mostly Gentile church that's been influenced by Jewish teaching, Paul says in 3.26, You are all sons of God through faith in the Messiah Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, with the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendant, and heirs according to the promise. Okay, a lot of effort because the scriptures say again and again and again, in Christ Jesus there is one people of God, united in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile. Ramming that home. Here is the problem of Romans 9 to 11. What about the Jews? That's great. But what about the Jews? Because the Jewish Messiah came and by and large the Jewish people rejected their Messiah and the Gentiles, the nations, were the ones coming to put their faith in the Jewish Messiah. What is going on? And it's the same today by and large. Most of the Christian church is made up, like we are today, of Gentiles. It's a big issue for Paul in Romans 9. He says in verse 3, I wish myself that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own race, the people of Israel, because theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, the fathers, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Like, this is crazy. Chapter 10, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. Breaking Paul's heart. 
For I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based upon knowledge. Why aren't the Jews, my brethren, coming to faith in the Messiah? Well, Paul has two basic answers. And it starts with a very key statement, the the paradigm statement, I think, for these three verses, in chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul says, listen, it's not as though God's word had failed. God hasn't made a mistake. He's faithful to his promises. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul goes into an argument saying God's promises stand but God is sovereign and he's always been sovereign and from within the nation, the descendants of Abraham, he has called to himself a remnant, a faithful remnant. In other words, within Israel there is the true Israel and it's always been that way, he argues in chapter 9 because God is sovereign. When you get to chapter 10, Rather than having that Godward perspective, Paul then has the human perspective of why Israel has turned from their Messiah. It's because they chose to. They rejected their Messiah because the Messiah says, you cannot save yourself, I have to save you. And Israel wants to keep following the law and thinking that they can save themselves. And so they reject Jesus who says, you cannot save yourself. So from a human perspective, Paul says, Why is Israel not coming to faith in Jesus? Because they choose to reject him, because they think they can do it themselves, because of pride. In verse 20 of chapter 10, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Because they have choose not to come, though God keeps calling. Are you with me? I hope you're still with me. I know it's hard work. Come to chapter 11. That's important background. Verse 1. Again, the question is asked. I ask then, did God reject his people? Paul's answer is by, he's just repeating himself, by no means. And he gives two evidences that he hasn't rejected him, the people of that God hasn't rejected the Jews. First one's pretty straightforward. He says, I am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Benjamin, a, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at me. And with Paul, it was all God's grace. Paul was a rudder. Then he draws attention to the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a prophet at a time of incredible apostasy in Israel. The king and the queen were worshipping Baal. They had hundreds of prophets serving and worshipping Baal. It looked like the whole nation had turned away. Except for Elijah. And Elijah shows everyone that he is God, but then the queen goes to hunt him down and he runs and he runs and he says, as Paul quotes it here, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, in Elijah's time, Elijah thought he was on his own, that he was the only one left, the only remnant who was faithful to the Lord. But God says, no, no, there's 7,000 people 
who are mine in Israel, that I, who have not, I have reserved for myself, says the Lord in his sovereign will and power. There is an Israel amongst Israel. There are the people of God amongst the people of God. And so it is today. So in verse 7, What then? What Israel sought to earnest, so earnestly to it, it did not obtain, but the elect did, and the others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, and ears so they could not hear to this very day. And then he quotes from David in the Psalms. All the good things given to Israel had just become a trap and a snare for them, and they reject them. But God is doing his work amongst them despite that. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, says David, and their backs be bent forever. So is it hopeless? We ask the question again. Is it hopeless? Paul says in verse 11, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And again the answer, not at all. You see, Israel, the Jews still exist. They still exist today. Israel as a people. And God is still at work amongst them, particularly to bless the nations. Because God said through them he would bless the nations. God is at work amongst Israel to bless the nations. So in verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 12, if their transgression, their false step means riches for their world, if their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? See, as Israel rejected, it kind of made space for the Gentiles to come to faith, for the nations to come to faith. And the, the faith of Jesus Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, wasn't an exclusively Jewish thing. And we have all come to faith, not all of us, but I'm sure many of us have come to faith as Gentiles. We view our religion as a non-Jewish religion, which is a false presumption. But it's kind of made space for us. We've been blessed by God's dealings with Israel. But that is not the end of the story. Paul has two illustrations. The first, I believe, shows how God is blessing the world through Israel. Verse 16, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, if God's calling upon Israel is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Makes sense. If the first bit's holy, then it spreads through the whole thing. Even those included through faith in Jesus who are foreigners. The second illustration is more detailed. And it's kind of weird. It's quite a strange illustration. It's a contrary to nature illustration. In ancient times, they would grow lots of olives in the Mediterranean. And you might have an olive tree growing, wild. You know, if we've got a wild tree, it's probably not going to be very fruitful. It probably hasn't come from a good source and you're not tending it and caring. But the wild tree can be very, very healthy. It's got its roots deeply set. So what they at times do is get a cultivated branch or cultivated branches from a good olive tree and graft them into the wild olive tree. And what would happen, that would pick up all the nutrients from the deep roots and you would quickly, within a season or two, have fruit on the grafted branches. 
instead of waiting for a whole tree. Now, what Paul says here is the exact opposite of that. If some of the branches have been broken off off the olive tree that God established, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing sap from the olive tree, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, what God has done by his grace and his mercy has taken branches from a wild olive tree, an unfruitful olive tree, a non-cultivated olive tree, and he has gone and stuck them onto the cultivated, planted olive tree that's fruitful. That's, you know, why would, what, what would you do that for? You do it because you're a God of grace. You do it because you're seeking to bless the nations. You do those to whom the promises weren't given and you put them into the tree of the promises so that they can grow. And then by your grace, you cause them to be fruitful along with the natural branches. It's a weird illustration because it's weird. It kind of makes you think. And what is the root of this tree? As I see it, the root of the tree is the covenant promises made to Abraham and Moses and David. The covenant promises made to Israel. That is the root. The covenant promises that find their fulfillment in the promised Messiah, Jesus. Who, when we get to Romans 15, Paul says, quoting Isaiah, the root of Jesse will spring up the one who will arise to rule the nations and the Gentiles will hope in him. Jesus is the root of even Jesse, father of King David. When you go to Revelations twice, we're told that Jesus is the root of David, the one from whom David, King David, who was the great king, gets his blessings and promises from. We've been united into the root, into the promises of God against nature for us Gentiles, into one tree. How many olive trees are there that God's concerned about? There is one olive tree. There are those growing on the olive tree, getting their nutrients from the root. And there are wild olive trees, the gent- you and me, stuck in there by the grace of the gardener, And there are the natural olive trees, the ones to whom the promises were given, growing there by the grace of the gardener. One people. One new Israel. In Ephesians 4, I'm just ramming this point home. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because there is one body, One spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all, one olive tree. And how are you included into this olive tree? How can you be part of that fruitful olive tree that God is at work amongst? Well, have a look at verse 19, which is actually a warning. You will say then the Gentiles, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Well, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, a lack of faith. And you stand by belief, by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You are included by faith and faith alone, which is the message throughout Romans that Paul has been ramming home by trusting in the Messiah. It's the only way. So is this to say that there is no longer any ethnic Israel, any Jew? Like that's old covenant, that's done with. Well, no, not at all. But it does say that there is no guarantee if you are a Jew that you are part of God's people because there is an Israel within Israel and always has been and always will be. And you receive that by faith in the Messiah, the one to who is promised to you. Paul says to the Gentiles here, don't you dare look down on your Jewish brothers or your Jewish non-brothers who are outside the church. Rather, as for most of us, as Gentile believers... We are to hold the Jewish people in the highest esteem because we have been grafted into their tree by God's grace. Don't look down on them. Don't think you're better. Don't make the mistake that so many of them made in rejecting Jesus and looking down on the world. Paul says, don't you dare do that. You're risking God's kindness. Rather, hold them in the highest esteem. Let me give you an illustration. In Australia, the Aboriginals were here. We've got any Aboriginals with us today. They were in our nation many, many thousands of years, probably before you and I were. They are natural Australians. The land is sort of made for the Aboriginal people. We are foreigners. We are aliens. We would have been grafted into this nation. Now, let me tell you, if you're an Australian, you're an Australian. You're every bit as good as the Aboriginal Australian. But the Aboriginal Australians are worthy of higher esteem. Then, why? Understand? The Jews, well, they're their promises. God made promises to them. And we're kind of the foreigners. Yes, we get all the privileges. Yes, we're in the tree. But kind of unnaturally so. We need to hold the Jewish people in the high esteem. And the Christ, the, there is a sad history in the Christian church of anti-Semitism. Of despising Jews rather than esteeming them. And offering them hope in the Messiah. Paul says... After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated orange tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? See, when a Jew comes to faith in Jesus, it's like putting a hand in a glove made for you. It just fits. It's natural. And the church, I don't know if you've thought about this because we're kind of weird, The church is by nature a Jewish family. We're the ones welcomed into the family. And there is one family, one people of God, all children of Abraham, according to God's promise, by God's purpose, united in the Lord Jesus the Messiah. That's my comments on God's people. 
God's people, however, are tied to God's purpose. Who he has gathered, he is gathering his redeemed people, redeemed by the blood of his own son, under the lordship of Jesus, his son, as new creations to manifest his glory. God is calling people, whether Jew or Gentile, to manifest his glory. And there is to be unity amongst his people, the church. One of the main reasons Paul wrote the entire letter of Romans was to encourage the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church to be united. Let me give you a bit of a history lesson. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Troublesome people. Perhaps extra troublesome because of this Christian stuff that was going on. As far as Claudius was concerned, it was all Jews. So the Jews got expelled. Well, how do you think the church was when it first started in Rome? It was probably almost all Jews who had been spread, Jewish Christians who had been spread from Jerusalem and others coming to Rome and creating communities of faith in Jesus. And then Gentiles were coming into this faith. When the Jews leave, who's left? All the Gentiles, all the Romans and others forming church. For five years, till Claudius' death, the Jews were expelled from Rome. When Claudius died, they were allowed to come back and many of them did. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian coming back in, you're coming into a very different church. Before they left, probably the church secretary, the deacon, whatever the names you want to use, they were probably all Jews. They come back into the church now and all the leaders are Romans. You can see the conflict that can happen in this church. And the Romans, they look down at these Jews because the Jews are now our enemies. And they were, Jews were basically the enemies of Christians at this time as a generalization. And the Jews come back and say, hold it, we're the people of God. We sh-. You see the problems? So Paul is writing to this church that they might be united because they are one family in Christ Jesus. And Paul is particularly writing to humble the Gentiles. You and me, because they've been saved only by grace and they owe the Jews a debt. Verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Verse 20. They were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith, so do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. There is no place for boasting. There is no place for superiority. There is to be unity in the church. God is gathering his people as one church to display his faithfulness and his mercy and his glory. And so we come to the most debated, probably the hardest verses in the chapter, verse 25 and 26. As far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews, that is, are enemies on your account. Yes, most of the Jews are opposing the gospel and Christians. But as far as election is concerned, says Paul, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. God did make promises to save his people, the descendants of Abraham. Oh, I read the wrong verses. It's making sense to me. I read 28, sorry. Verse 25, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. 
so that you may not be conceited. See, I don't want you Gentiles to be arrogant. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Or so, or in this way, accordingly, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will take turn godlessness away from Jacob. I think what's being said there is that God is faithful according to his promise. All Israel will be saved, as was God's intention when he called Abraham and made great promises to him. God is faithful. And I think he's saying, that olive tree, I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to look after it. The question, the debate there is, there's a couple of debates, there's a lot of debates that happen over this verse. And I won't go into all the details, you can read it yourself. There's one debate is, what is all Israel? Is it all of God's people, Jew and Gentile? Is it just the elect Israel? Some would say it's all Jews, and that just cannot be justified from anything in Romans or elsewhere in the scripture. But um, the other debate is, is Paul talking about a now time, today? Or has he got a future perspective so that one day down the track around the time of Jesus' return, which is why it gets back to the raising from the dead argument and the full number arguments, there's going to be a large influx of Jews coming to faith in Jesus. Or in the millennium, as some people would see, will there be a whole resurrection of Jews? I don't know. It all gets so confusing. I will say this. Whichever view you take, you are taking it based upon a handful of words, which are cryptic. I've wrestled with them. I don't find them easy. My own conviction is I don't see any, this is my personal conviction, I've worked hard at it and I've read lots of things, I don't see any future sense in this passage. And I've looked for it and I probably thought that before I came to this passage, but I don't see any future prophetic sense in this passage anywhere. And many people will disagree with me, many godly, wise scholars, and many people will agree with me. But that's my conviction as I've come to it. But God, the bottom line is, there is assurance God will save his people. What is God doing now with his people Israel, with those who he called ethnic Israel? What is he doing? Well, he's actually trying to provoke them to jealousy. He's making space for Gentiles to come to faith and in doing so he's provoking them to jealousy. As if they will look at the church, they will look at the Gentiles and the Jews who are part of the church and say, I want some of that. You saw this in that, it's there in chapter 10, verse 19. I'll just read a few verses. Paul says, Did they stumble in verse 11 so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to, Israel, to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my own ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise my own people to envy and save some of them. This is a massive challenge. However you view this passage. <laughs> I don't know many Jews. And my guess is most of you don't know many Jews. I've known a few. None as none close friends. Not because I'm trying to avoid them. I just don't meet them. I don't live in Dover Heights or St. Ives or New York, Brooklyn or Israel. 
But the challenge is that the Jewish people should be able to look at the Christian church. They should be able to look at Christians they know and say, it's not like that for me. The work of the one Spirit of God should be so powerfully seen in God's church and amongst God's people that the Jewish people should look and say, it's not like that for us. I want some of that. We should be making them envious by the power of the Spirit of God working righteousness and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness amongst us. There's a challenge. That is the call to the Gentile church. That the Jews might call on their Messiah and be grafted back in. And you know, it is happening to a measure. There are more people calling themselves Messianic Jews who have discovered Jesus as a Messiah. It is happening to a measure. And may it continue. And may we, this Gentile, mostly Gentile church, play our part of loving our Jewish brothers and sisters and setting a godly example in all that we do. God's people, God's purpose, God's power. How is God going to do it? Well, we have, what, what, how is God going to do with this great work of this olive tree and grafting these people in from whether Jew or Gentile? He's going to do it by his power. It will be his work. It will be according to his purpose. It will be according to his will. And it will humble us because it's all God's work. There's much of the language of God's sovereignty that we encountered in chapter 9 in this chapter. I can see you're starting to wilt with the heat. So I'm going to try and skip on. And this is a tough passage. But God is able... Verse 22, consider the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if you do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For goodness sakes, he was able to take a wild olive tree that was totally unproductive, take a cutting, graft it into the natural one and produce fruit out of it. You reckon it won't be easy to pick up the natural ones and stick them back in? God is able to save Jew and Gentile and bring them into his family. He does it according to his will and his sovereign purpose. He is powerful. He is in control. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles come in and so in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is going to act through his Saviour, through the Messiah, to take away the sin of Israel, to take away the sin of all those who come to the Messiah and put their faith in his blood spilt for them. God is able, God does the work. And when you're preaching, I was talking to my mate Ian, who's going to be preaching at Sunday night at Castleville Baptist. He's preaching through Romans. And he says, the hard thing is every sermon is about you cannot save yourself. Every single time I speak, the same message, you cannot save yourself. It comes through Romans again and again and again. Your works won't do it. Your ancestry won't do it. Your attendance won't do it. 
You need to trust in the Messiah, Jesus. Because salvation is all by God's power. And we bring nothing. We add nothing. And therefore, as Paul is writing to these Gentile Christians, humble yourselves. Don't think that you're anything because you've been included and the Gentiles are falling away. You humble yourselves. Because it's all by grace, which brings us to the last point. The final point, and I think the most important point in this whole chapter, is you get distracted by all these controversies. This is where Paul finishes. This is where he starts the next section of his teaching. Our salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, however it's done, and all those schemes that might be developed out of Romans chapter 11, is only because of God's mercy. It's only because of God's mercy. Remember Paul? He says, oh, look, God's still at work amongst the Jews. Look at me. I'm a believer in Jesus, the Messiah. I'm in the olive tree. And Paul was persecuting the church. Paul was totally opposed to Jesus as much as any man could do. So God, by his grace, went and called him to himself and said, you're mine. You're my servant. Look at Elijah. He thinks he's all on his own. And yet God, by his grace, says, I have reserved for myself 7,000. All by God's mercy. All by God's grace. Verse 5 of chapter 11. So at the present time, amongst the Jews, Israel, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, and it is no longer by works, because if it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's all God's gift and grace. Even with the grafting, Verse 22, consider the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in the kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in belief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. All by God's grace, even the fallen Jews can come back. The end of the argument, it all finishes on mercy. Verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So us Gentiles who were disobedient, we've received mercy on account of the Jews' disobedience. So they too, the Jews, have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Here's where Paul finishes. This is the end of his argument. For God has bound all men Jew and Gentile, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. It is all undeserved. The descendants of Abraham by nature, that is Israel, they're all wicked. They just kept failing again and again. They kept turning away. And yet God kept having mercy and he will keep having mercy. Those of us who aren't descendants of Abraham, we are so wicked. We are so undeserving. We keep turning away from God again and again and again, willfully. And God is so merciful in calling us into his family. We don't even just belong there. We don't even belong there by nature. We're only there by God's mercy, his compassion. How does Paul start Romans chapter 12? You see, when he gets to the end of chapter 11, he's finished his big argument and chapter says, I'm going to make, I now want you to apply what it means to be a Christian. He says this, Therefore, 
Therefore, in light of everything I've been saying for these last three chapters, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. If you read Romans chapter 11 and you walk away from it full of lots of thoughts and ideas about the end times and and what God's doing in the place of Jews and Gentiles and schemes and stuff, well, there is a place for that. But you should be leaving Romans chapter 10 overwhelmed, 11, overwhelmed by God's mercy to both the Jew and the Gentile because none of us deserve it. None of us deserve to be in that family of God. We're only saved through the love of Jesus. We're only saved by God's elective call. No place for boasting. I fear so often people get stuck in Romans 11 and they miss the big picture. It's not wrong to ask those questions that I've struggled with. But I think the big picture is clear that Romans 11 puts the emphasis on God God is calling his people. He is doing it according to his purpose. He is on the throne according to his will. He is doing it not with any help from any other party, but purely by his own power. And he is doing it to manifest his glory in the cosmos. His glory seen in his mercy and his grace to the undeserving, whether they be Jew or Gentile. That is the big picture. And I reckon if you don't get that big picture from Romans 9 to 11, you haven't understood a thing. And then go and worry about the things that are complex that people argue over. The wonders of God's love, that he should call even Gentiles, like most of us, into his family. Wild olive shoots. Give us his spirit and offer us hope and eternity. So what sort of response should we have? Well, there's lots of things we can think about. There's things like Jewish ministry. There's greater work on unity. There's application on being an attractive church of warning, don't fall away. There's lots of applications, but, you know, really the simple application is very, very straightforward. Paul gives it to us. Oh, the depths, it's praise. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? We're totally dependent upon his mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever. Amen. Where does Romans 11 leave you? Oh, hot and confused. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> it should leave us just awestruck with praise before God. And it should leave us awestruck with praise before God because of his unsearchable, un- almost unknowable purposes and plans which are manifest in Jesus and which reveal to us more than anything else his grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. Therefore, you've got to praise. You've got to bend the knee. God is saving his people by grace, for his glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to keep wrestling with it in the sections that are more out of our normal expectation or our understanding. And help us, Lord, to see how it keeps pointing us back to the Lord Jesus and his amazing love for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.